Welcome to the Vine Podcast. This is Warren. And on today's episode, we're going to be talking about different genres of literature that we find in our Christian Bible. The Bible is a collection of writings, letters, poetry, and more, a collection that includes various genres of writings and literature. And so the different genres that we find in the Bible can have an impact on how we read it and, and how we interact with Scripture. And we want to explore some of that today in conversation. Conversation. And so joining me for this conversation today is a good friend of the Vine, David Knipe. Welcome, David. Hey there. Glad to be with you all. I'm, I'm glad that you're joining us for this conversation. And it's, um, you know, there, there's a couple of different conversations that we've tried to engage kind of around this idea of, of what is the Bible and how do we read the Bible and all kinds of different conversations that can go into that. And so I think this is... Um, a conversation that fits right in line with some of those topics. And so I'm grateful that you, that you're willing to spend some time thinking through that with us today. You bet. Glad to do it. Uh, so let's start, I guess, with a little bit um, of, of kind of bio information about you, I guess, David, like I said, I know a lot of our people at the Vine know you well. And, and um, even if they don't know, know you well, many people here know your parents well. Um, and of course, your um, Bill and Kathy were beloved members and very involved people here at the Vine for, for a long time. And uh, I know, like I said, many know you as well, but I know you've been at, at ACU for 12 years, you said, and yep. have just started a new position with the Cybert Institute there. So some people may not know a whole lot about what you're doing there now, I guess. Uh, so can you just kind of share some about what you're doing at ACU now and, uh, and how you're doing generally? Sure, I can. Um, so like you said, I've been, I've been teaching at ACU for 12 years. Uh, the main things I teach are uh, church history and worship classes, and then kind of a, a variety of other things, including some of the ones uh, on biblical text. Um, and then uh, about a year ago, the guy who's the director of the Cyber Institute, which is a, a part of ACU that's especially focused on churches and ministers, uh, approached me and asked me about uh, joining that team. And uh, I was I was really intrigued by that because uh, the Cyber Institute grows out of the work of uh, one of our longtime faculty who died about a decade ago, um, who was kind of the one-stop shop at ACU for preachers and ministers and churches who were trying to find new jobs or heal or whatever. Um, and after he died, uh, kind of in his memory and in his legacy, they established this, this center. And we do lots of different activities and initiatives uh, from different events on campus, events that we go kind of out on the road. Uh, we help churches that are trying to find ministers and ministers trying to find churches. Uh, we do things to help churches assess their own health, do surveys of uh, ministers' salaries, just kind of all kinds of different things. But the big goal is helping churches to thrive uh, and helping to equip church leaders because we know it's, it's always challenging being a church and there's lots of churches and ministers that are just kind of uh, working in isolation. We don't, we don't always do a really good job of kind of finding ways to support each other. And we feel like at ACU, there's a lot of resources that we have to be able to support. So, um, so I help by planning events and uh, interacting with churches. Just this fall, I've gotten to uh, guest preach at a church down in Kerrville. Uh, we held an event up in Amarillo where we were trying to gather together ministers from different places and just encourage and equip them. Uh, and then we're looking ahead to the spring, hopefully more things as COVID hopefully continues to decline at least this time around. So right. uh, it's been, it's been really fulfilling. Just, I, I like the classroom, but also the church and I like students, but also ministers. And so it's, it's a great way to be able to do both. Yeah, that's great. Well, I know as a minister, I've been appreciative of a lot of the things that the Cyber Institute has done. And, and even like you said, coming, coming kind of in this um, time of trying to figure out what church looks like. Uh, hope, as you said, hopefully coming out of sort of the pandemic and, and in a post-COVID world, I know, I know y'all have a uh, maybe even a more vital and, and essential role of, of kind of helping churches figure some of that out going forward. So, so I'm appreciative of, of the work y'all are doing and um, eager to hear what, what y'all have coming, coming in the future. You bet. Well, it's our pleasure. Yeah. Uh, so for, for our topic of the day, then kind of thinking through genres of, of, of scripture, um, I know you had told me that this is a kind of a topic that you, I think, have, have presented kind of in church uh, settings. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, so maybe we can just start with just kind of a couple of questions to get started. So how I'm, I'm curious how you kind of became interested in this topic. Was this something of interest to you or something you kind of got through 
assignment or, or through, through work at ACU? Or how did, how did you kind of uh, begin to kind of think about this and look at this? Yeah, I, I think honestly, it really began like a long time ago in high school and college. Uh, when I was in high school at Temple High, I had great English teachers. And I mean, I'd always kind of been a math kid growing up. And uh, having great English teachers really made me appreciate not just reading, which I'd always enjoyed reading, but literature. And they helped us think in a lot of ways. And I thought, man, maybe I can be, maybe I can be an English teacher one day. And so I went to college and was, was an English major uh, alongside theater as well. And before I was feeling called into ministry. Uh, but also one of the other things that happened in college was uh, in our, I think it was in our campus ministry, we read that book and it's been around for a long time now, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, that I think mm-hmm. it's Douglas Stewart and Gordon Fee maybe. Um, and it's about the different genres in the Bible. And I don't know that, I mean, I'm sure it had crossed my mind, but I don't really remember ever thinking a lot about how the Bible is an anthology. Um, But that book really helped me kind of begin to think about that. And they gave different reading strategies for the different, uh, the different genres. It probably also coincided with the way our campus ministry did Bible study. Like I think my very first semester or at least year, but maybe even semester, we read the gospel of Mark. Uh, Just, we spent the semester reading this one gospel. That, That was what we did for our Bible study. And so focusing on one gospel, uh, my senior year, we spent a semester reading through the minor prophets. And so it made it where we were thinking about like one focused section of scripture rather than just, you know, this sermon this day is about this and this Bible class lesson is about that, you know, and, and that's really good. But spending time in an extended way with one part of the Bible just kind of comes across differently. I think it made me experience it differently as well. Yeah, that's good. And, and so maybe just to start kind of at a kind of a base level for people, mm-hmm. uh, what, what do we mean when, they, when we say that there are different genres of literature and scripture? Uh, how many genres are there? What are they? Just kind of what, what do we mean when we say that? Yeah. So, you know, it, it's funny, like in English, when we say the Bible, that's a singular thing. It's not a plural, right? It's not the Bible. Right. Yeah. It's the Bible. And we've always kind of said this is like one book, you know, you get those bumper stickers. The Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Um, and that goes all the way back to the early church, which is some of the stuff I study. Like one of the, there was a guy in the three hundreds who said the Bible is one book by one author. And he was emphasizing the unity of scripture. Sure, um, sure. But it's also true that the Bible is made up of a lot of other books. You know, it's kind of like a textbook in high school English class. It's an anthology and not to mention the texts in the Bible refer to other texts that aren't there. You know, like in first and second Kings, it'll tell you like three sentences about some obscure King. And it says, if you want to know more about him, go check the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah. And like, I don't have that book on my shelf, but okay. You <laughs> Where's know, the link or, to that is? <laughs> yeah. yeah. We, we, we don't have a hyperlink. Right. Uh, or, you know, sometimes it's implicitly like in, in Jude, that little book in the new Testament, there are little references to other things. So like, the texts of the Bible know that there are things out there and sometimes they're spiritual and sometimes they're not like in Colossians, Paul says, Hey, when y'all are done with this letter, go read the letter I wrote to the layout. Like y'all switch with the letter I wrote to the Laodiceans. And we don't have that one. And in acts when Paul's on Mars Hill, he's referring to like secular poetry. I mean, it's the equivalent of like, you know, that Coldplay song that just came out, you know, or the Adele, her new single. Let me, let me make a spiritual lesson out of that. And so it's, it's this group of texts that are different and also refer to other texts, which is just kind of an, kind of an interesting thing. So in terms of the genres, you know, that's just kind of a fancy way of saying that there are different kinds of texts. Um, sometimes it's the, the nature of the text itself. Like it might be poetry or it might be prose, just everyday language. Uh, sometimes it's like the way we get it. So it's stories or it's little pithy sayings like in Proverbs Um, sometimes the author is talking to the audience, like in Paul's letters, you know, where he's saying you need to do this or you don't need to do that. And then other times it's in the third person. Like, it's just, it's a history. Let me tell you about what happened. Um, you know, and, and in some ways it's hard to get that without like flipping through the Bible and seeing how different they are. Like, it's easier to say that that's the case, but the more you read it, the more you really see, man, this, this is different. Um, as far as how many there are, it's kind of tricky because 
you can like divide and subdivide them in some different ways. I mean, right. I would probably say some basics would be like, there's, there's some history texts where it's just, we're just going to tell you what happened. Uh, you have things like the gospels in the new Testament where they're telling you about the life of Jesus, but they're wanting you to do something about it. It's not just informational. Like they want you to give your life to Jesus, not just say, Oh, that's interesting. Mm. Um, you've got the letters in the new Testament. You have the prophets, uh, the law texts in the old Testament, where it's saying like, these are the, the regulations that God's people are going to live by. Uh, the Psalms is sort of its own thing where it's like these poems that are kind of prayers or like worship songs. Uh, and then there's this weird one called apocalyptic, which is mainly revelation, but there's a couple places in the old Testament. And it's something that like, nobody writes that anymore, but it's something that existed at that time where, uh, they were, the writers were saying to to an audience, Hey, I know your world is in total chaos right now, but I had this vision and in this vision, God is showing me this is what's really happening. Like there's more going on than meets the eye. And so like in Revelation, the author gets this vision of heaven that while you're worshiping at the same time in heaven, there are people worshiping God. And when you're struggling on earth, there's also struggle going on in heaven. And so the goal is like, you know, to be hopeful, but it's, it's really weird. You know, you've got all these like numbers and animals and colors and visions and it's it's definitely apocalyptic is definitely wins the award for strangest genre in the Bible. Um, but in some ways it kind of points out just, just how diverse all the texts really are. You know, it's not all the same thing. Yeah, that's great. And and I think, yeah, the apocryphal or the, uh, not the apocryphal, the apocalyptic stuff, wrong word there. <laughs> um, like, you know, the stuff like revelation and stuff does tend to be the stuff that's probably the hardest for us to read. Mm -hmm. but um, sometimes creates the most interest because of that. Like I remember in youth ministry, my, you know, junior high students always want to study revelation. Like, well, I don't know that that's the, the most pertinent thing for junior high students, but, right. but maybe, better, maybe better than song of Solomon. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. But there's dragons and stuff in there and there's crazy stuff having, yeah. having revelation. But I do think like recognizing that there's a difference in the way we read revelation and Matthew does seem to be helpful for us. And, and I think, uh, you know, one of the things that you said there that, that I, I did think was interesting, too, was this idea that even in the Gospels, where it's um, sort of historical in, in one sense, they're wanting us to get something out of it. They're wanting us to do something with that. Mm -hmm. That that does seem different than, like, it's the point of it, it isn't basically, you know, it's not trying to be straight journalism or something like we would think of that in the ideal case, right? There is some type of persuasive or, or leading almost element to it, right? Yeah. And sometimes it even says it. I mean, the beginning of Luke, he's talking to this guy, Theophilus, and he says, this is so that, you know, you can be confirmed in what you've been taught. Like this guy, Theophilus, may be a baby Christian. He might even be not sure that he's on board with Jesus yet. And Luke's saying, I wrote this, I investigated this and wrote it down so that you can be sure of that stuff you've heard. And in the end of John, he's, you know, the author says, these things happen so that you may believe that Jesus is the son of God, you know, and, and, and that's not just like agreeing that two plus two is four. It's like, mm. be ready to be ready to give your life because this is, he's the most important guy ever. Yeah. You're going to have to make a decision about something mm -hmm. based on, based on this information. Yeah. yeah. And that's really different from some of the other, other kinds of texts in the Bible. Mm, that's good. Yeah. And like you said, I think I had a similar experience of kind of coming to this realization of, oh yeah, the, the Bible isn't one book. Um, the, the Bible is, is a collection of things written over a long period of time from different authors mm -hmm. uh, for different purposes um, in, in different styles and, and all of those things. And, and I think to me, it added a richness to scripture and a depth to it um, and, and helped me to, to make sense of, of, of kind of, what, what we read as you look at it through, throughout the course of, of what we, of what we call our, our collected Bible. Yeah. And so I'm wondering then, like, are there places where, where, where we could ha maybe have differences of opinion or, or difficulties of kind of placing a book in a specific genre or type? Um, and I'm imagining, especially in the old Testament, that it seems like there are some places where we could, maybe this would take some discernment and probably impact how we go about reading that text. Right. Yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, maybe some of the, the easiest examples would be 
so like in the book of Exodus, you know, it starts out with the story of the Israelites suffering in Egypt and God calling Moses. Mm-hmm. But then you get to chapter 12 and all of a sudden, by the way, here's a whole chapter of how I want you to do the Passover. And it's like mm-hmm. we kind of switched into like the law for a minute. And then there's some more stories. And then there's a song in chapter 15. And then there's more stories. And then we get seven chapters of, or eight chapters of, no, 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 seven. This is how you're going to build the tabernacle like with very explicit instructions and then three more chapters of story with the golden calf and then seven chapters that kind of repeat the first set of seven about this is how you're supposed to build a tabernacle. And and then he's actually doing it. Um, And what I think that shows is that the Bible that we have is the result of really intentional editing. Like Mm -hmm. that the people, you know, at some point in history, they had had these stories and these materials handed down to them. And there were people that said, God's people need all this together. And they kind of stitched it together and put it together. You know, and, and I think sometimes that's, that's a struggle for people that, that when, when it looks like there are human fingerprints on the Bible, but you know, in some ways, I don't know, maybe it's just a different image. It's almost like a beautiful quilt that yeah. people have put to, you know, lovingly put together this is going to be for the good of God's people. Um, and yeah, some of the, th- some of the things do seem kind of different, but the whole that it creates uh, is this beautiful thing. Sometimes it's a little bit strange. Like you read some of the prophets and they're kind of switching back and forth between, all right, this is what God says. And then there's like visions in the middle of it. Um, but I guess the other example I might give would be out of the Psalms. Um, the Psalms are a book that I love and it's like the, kind of the, the hymn book or the prayer book of Israel and you read them and, and there's different kinds of Psalms. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them are like first person kind of singular. I did it. I was struggling and then God saved me. Sometimes it's the plural, like we did this. Um, sometimes like it's, Hey, let me just tell you the history of how good God has been to us. Mm-hmm. Um, but even the very first one, the very first Psalm sounds like it belongs in the book of Proverbs because it says, mm-hmm. you know, blessed is the person who lives their life according to the law, the person who avoids evil people and mockers, but their delight is in the law of the Lord and they meditated on it day and night. And they're going to be like a tree planted by streams of water. You know, it's like the, the beautiful big trees down in Salado and Belton on the river. Um, like that's what your life is going to be like. And that doesn't really sound like a prayer or a song. It sounds more like a teacher saying it, and yet it's in the Psalms so that it could be a prayer. You know, I could say, God, help me be this kind of person. Or like, this is a prayer that's been handed on to me. And then I could ask God to help me help my children, help my family, help my church uh, to be kind of like this. So yeah, sometimes they do kind of kind of mix up and it can be a little tricky. Um, but, you know, at the same time, I don't think when we get to heaven, God is going to give us a genre of the Bible test with multiple <laughs> choice. And we got to like, you know, we got to bubble in the right answer. <laughs> Or else we're, we're, we're in trouble. You know, this is, this is just a value added to be sure, able to get yeah. more out of scripture while we're here. So, yeah, and that's yeah. good. Absolutely. And I think another thing that's been helpful for me with Psalms and, and, um, and even like, you know, of course, something like Lamentations is just this idea that, that though there is existent within scripture, just people just kind of expressing frustration and yep. anger and grief, um, all of these things that, that like you said in Psalm coincide right along there with songs of Psalms of praise and, and exaltation and, you know, glorifying God while also saying, hey, God, I'm, I'm kind of struggling to figure some of this out, or I don't know why you're doing this and it doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. And, and I think that's helpful. And I think it was Philip Yancey that, that I heard say, or I guess probably read that he wrote somewhere that I think it was him that uh, said, you know, he challenged some of his students to, to find arguments that atheists made against God that weren't made in scripture. And his point was that anything that you were going to use against God, you could find in scripture somewhere. <laughs> uh, but because, because those things exist, the frustrations and anger and all that are kind of contained with, within the Bible um, that just adds to, to the, to the depth and the diversity of, of as you said, the, the quilt that we have of this, this text that's been put together. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to ask you about specifically about another Old Testament book about kind of, so what do we do with something like this? Uh, so I want to get your thoughts on Job, the book mm-hmm. of Job. 
mm-hmm. which which includes some poetry, some narrative. Um, and I know there are different thoughts about. So is this is this recounting an actual event? Is this more metaphorical in nature for the whole book or parts of the book? So how do you how do you personally kind of wrestle with with a book like Job? Yeah, well, so I think I think one of the things that's important to say kind of up front in thinking about Job, well, one, two things. One is I definitely don't have all the answers. I mean, my goodness. Uh, right. <laughs> it's, it's a challenging text. And, you know, who knows? That's why I said like wrestling with. thousand years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're, we're all trying to figure it out. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I think another one is that it's set up for us as a story. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like it's like a film where you have the prologue and then it's like, okay, after God and Satan talk and the stuff happens, then it's like, now we're going to zoom in for like 40 chapters or something and watch this dialogue that happens. And then at the end, it kind of, it kind of zooms back out, but it's, it's given to us as though it's a story. And I think that re- is really important because uh, there are two things that I think can derail us a little bit. One is in our culture, the idea that every story has to have a moral. And the goal is find the moral of the story. And I had a teacher once who said, the reason that's problematic with the Bible is if every story has a moral and you're trying to find the moral, once you find the moral, you don't need the story anymore. Like mm. you've gotten what you need out of it and you can just, kind of, you know, it's like you've, you've eaten the, pe- the peach and you can toss the pit aside because, you know, you, you sort of got it. Hmm. And that's not really that's not really how stories work for us, you know, like just kind of stay in the secular world. I mean, every year at July 4th, we tell the story of our nation's founding every year at Thanksgiving, we tell the story and it, and it doesn't kind of stay the same for us over time. You know, the July 4th story, when you're a kid, it's like, Oh, fun songs and old Navy shirts and red, white, and blue. And, and then, you know, you get older and you start to appreciate that differently or over, over our history, the Thanksgiving story, you know, for a long time, it was like, what a beautiful narrative of white people and Native Americans, like working together. And then we've sort of realized over time, number one, I don't know if it was that neat and clean. And number two, uh, so the white people just kind of showed up and said, hey, thanks, we want to live here now. Um, this is a little more problematic than we realized. And what what this teacher of mine was was trying to point out that's really important about scripture is, the stories are crucial because they sort of mature and change in the way like scripture doesn't say at the end of the stories. And therefore mm. the one takeaway is this. Yeah. We just, yeah. we just get the stories, you know? Story. Yeah. And so we don't want to, we, we don't want to lose that. The, the other problem, problem, problematic. That's what I want. The problematic thing in our movement in the churches of Christ for those that grew up in it is that we were kind of taught to read, um, read the Bible, especially as like a law, as a set of rules. Mm-hmm. You know, you want to look for what is God commanding us to do? And so I, I was literally in a Bible class like a month ago when somebody referred to the beginning of the book of Job. And the way this guy explained the beginning of the book of Job, that when God brags about Job to Satan, he's saying, look, see, somebody can do it it's possible. And he didn't say to be perfect, but it was like, I, I know what you're, what you're getting at. And I thought, yeah, that's not exactly what the story is saying. Um, you know, and so like, even, even the way we kind of think about the Bible, uh, can shape what we do. Well, if you want to take a story as some kind of law, you've got to like assume that it's actually historical, you know, and that's one of the things that we don't know about things like, like Job and Jonah. Like, is this supposed to be history? Like there right. was really a guy named Job one day. Uh, there was a guy named Jonah. And then we've got to figure out scientifically how he lived in a big fish's stomach for three days. Or is it like, not a, not a fable, but, you know, sort of like the parables of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Like Jesus tells the parable of the prodigal son. I don't know if there was actually a prodigal son. Right. But it doesn't matter in Jesus' story because like I get I get what he's getting at, you know, and the story has its own power, even if there wasn't a news item one day that said Joe Smith finally came home after, you know, being in the far country for a long time. 
Now I say that, and I recognize I'm very comfortable just personally with the idea that, yeah, maybe it's historical, maybe it's not. And, and other people have a lot more invested in that. So I don't want to offend anybody in saying sure. that question doesn't matter. But it is something that for people that are interested and dig into it, you know, they're going to see people saying the way you make sense of Job is by remembering that it's, it's kind of like a parable. Um, but that can also raise other questions in people's mind about other, other stuff in the Bible. So anyway, that, that's kind of a lot of, a lot of preface. But uh, I, I think what it's doing for us in a lot of ways is showing a lot of things that are really true about life. Um, one is no matter how good things are going, it can always turn around real quick, <laughs> you know? And I mean, our brothers and sisters down in Houston have experienced that with, uh, you know, Hurricane Harvey a few years back. And before that, Katrina, you know, in Louisiana, like it, it doesn't take much to really destroy a carefully crafted life. Mm-hmm. And then we got to think, okay, how do I move on from there? Well, that's really good for us to think about even when we're in times of prosperity, like, what if all this disappeared? What would I do? Um, would I just curse God and be ready to die? Yeah. Um, would I maintain my righteousness? You know, what, what, what would I do? Um, yeah. And then that, that invites the you to the really think through what your, what your faith is really built on and, yeah. and what, what do you really have faith in? Yeah. 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 You know, so, or sorry, go ahead. I, I know you were no, no, you're good. That. You're good. Like, uh, or, or at the end of the book, you know, if God came to me, and said, okay, you've been complaining a lot. Now it's my turn to talk. What would he say to me? He might not say the same things he says to Job about creation, but he would probably say some things and hopefully I'd be ready to do like Job and say, I'm just going to put my hand over my mouth because I, I don't know that I have anything, anything else to say. Well, that's, that's probably also good to think about. What, what would happen if God showed up on my front porch one day and said, let's talk together for a little while. Mm. Um, so I don't know. I think, I think it invites a lot, of, a lot of introspection. I think it probably doesn't do some of the things we wanted it to do, and that is to give us like an airtight theology of suffering. Because yeah. in, yeah. in some ways, it's just one story of yeah. here's what happened. You know, and in some ways, the good thing, it's not good, but it's a good thing that there's a lot of suffering in the Bible. And so we can look very broadly at things that we see in scripture about suffering mm-hmm. uh, and about why bad th- things happen in the world. And Jesus himself addressed that, you know? I think that's good. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much there that that's helpful and, and insightful and yeah, to, to, to remember or to try to keep in mind what we're supposed to take from it. I do think is helpful that, because yeah, there, there is a lot of truth in Job, whether or not, um, whether or not it's a historical factual account of, of a guy's life that, that, yeah, if we try to make it into a theology about suffering, then we're going to be left wrestling with a lot of stuff. Um, but as you said, if it's about kind of how do I approach life and, and what would God say if I was in Job's shoes, that that yeah. flips how we read it and does seem to help us to read it more as, um, as, as a narrative story that's being told and helps us engage it maybe in some different ways. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, you know, the things that we pick out of it, like, in that worship song, it's nearly 20 years old now, but that song, Blessed Be Your Name, you know, there's that little bridge that says, you give and take away, you give and take away, my heart mm-hmm. will choose to say, blessed be your name. Well, that's like one line in Job. Mm-hmm. And for some folks, that's like, this is the way to understand suffering. God gives and God takes away. And that's got a great long tradition in Christian history and also it's not hard for that to then turn God into just kind of somebody that's like messing around with humanity. Sometimes you give, sometimes you take away. And like, do I have any role in that? What are the criteria that God uses to decide? And, and I, I almost wish, as much as I love that song, I almost wish that bridge weren't there because it almost kind of, I think it can kind of normalize a picture of God that doesn't necessarily fit with things you see in places like Exodus and Hosea and the gospel, like, I mean, God isn't capricious, but just to say it that way can almost, can almost give the sense that God is. Um, Mm, Yeah, that's good. 
And, you know, I was thinking when you, when you talked about not always looking for the moral in, in a story, mm-hmm. uh, I thought that was such great imagery that it just allows us to, to throw it out kind of after we've, after we've picked that, that out of it. And the other thing it made me think about was that I remember coming to this realization that I sort of expected that we have kind of the people that we expect to be the good guys in scripture. And, and so I, I realized this tendency that I had to want to make every action that we saw kind of those heroes doing as good or virtuous. And so right. if, I, if I read about Abraham doing something in the Bible, I, I realize I sort of have a disposition to want to make that into a virtuous or righteous action um, when it's just not. Um, yeah. and, and certainly David kind of makes that overt. We, we just recently talked in one of our worship services about this, like, the, the, this terrible account with, with David and Bathsheba and everything that he does there and does to her husband. And I mean, I said, you know, if, if you just take that one story, you would leave thinking David's like the villain of the Bible. He, I mean, it's just, a, it's just awful what, what, he, what he does there. Um, and, and so you can't do that with, with sort of the people that we would think as faithful people of scripture. But, but again, I think that's part of the beauty of it is that we've got, we've got all of it we've got the, the kind of the low points of this man in scripture who is also referred to as a man after God's own heart. And, and I think to me, that's hopeful and should be encouraging for us to see the ways that they, that they both fail and that they continue in faith and, and kind of um, continue to move forward in spite of their mistakes and failings and moments where, where they're lacking in faith. And, and I think the story of Abraham is, is similar where I think there are certainly ways, places you can read that story and say, I don't, I don't think Abraham made the best decision here, but, but he's continuing in faith and there seems to be something to that. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I, I would be really surprised if God didn't want us to read the Bible that way. I mean, right. you know, G- Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the mind is one of those, you know, um, there was a, there was a guy, a theologian who lived about a hundred years ago who once said, theology, you know, sometimes people think, oh, theology, that's either bad or it's intimidating or whatever. And he just said, theology is simply that part of religion that requires your brain. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like there are parts of religion that require your body, you know, passing the communion tray, standing up to sing parts of it require your heart. This is just the part that requires your brain. So like, it's fine. You know, you want to, you want to use your brain. I, I, I had a teacher once he said, he was talking about the David and Bathsheba story. And this is a, a little different conversation, but he said, one of the things that's good about that story is it reminds us that not everything that happens is God's will. Like not every and everything in the Bible is God's will. Cause David and Bathsheba, there's no way that was God's will. Like, and I was like, that's a good point. I never thought about that before, <laughs> but, but if I'm not thinking then, yeah, it's like, Oh, David's a good guy. David's the hero. Therefore I just imitate him. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, one of the things we had talked a little bit about beforehand was just the, the ways that misunderstanding the genres can kind of make us misread scripture a little bit, I think. And I think that's a, that's a good example of that. Yeah. So, and I, I know we've kind of covered some of those already, but are, do you think, are there other ways that we may can misread scripture if we're, if we're not kind of taking all that into, all that into account? Yeah, I, I, I think we really can. Um, and a lot of it just has to do with like the expectations that come you know, depending on what you're reading. So it's like, if you, um, we were talking about the, the stories and how sometimes we think there's a moral in the story and you got to figure it out. And, and so, so, I mean, sometimes these can be sort of crazy, but like I mentioned the prodigal son before, we kind of assume we know what we're supposed to get from that. But like one way you could do a moral of the story is when the older son shows up and he's mad about the younger son you say, yes, that's what we're supposed to do. Whenever there are freeloaders that are trying to take advantage of the church, we need to get righteously angry and refuse to have fellowship with them and rebuke the church leaders who are way too generous with the benevolence funds. Like that's kind of, and we sort of know intuitively, well, that's crazy talk. That's not, that's not what's going on. But if you're trying to get the moral, that's, that's one of the places you could go. Um, Another one would be sometimes in like in Paul's letters, because it's direct communication, uh, he's like us and sometimes uses like sarcasm or hyperbole. Uh, so like at the end of Romans five, there's a place where he says, um, that, you know, he's talking about how great God's grace is. And so 
then he says essentially something like, uh, because God's grace is so expands so much where there is sin, if we want God's grace to multiply, we need to sin a whole lot more. And it's like, well, Paul's writing it and he is super smart and God, you know, blessed him. But then the very next verse in the next chapter, he's like, no, that's crazy. <laughs> why, why would you want to sin more? But you know, you could, you could legitimately say, well, it says so in the Bible, like, shouldn't I do that? Because it says it. Well, but if you remember, okay, sometimes we're sarcastic. Sometimes we exaggerate. Um, you know, that, that's another example. I'll, I'll give you a couple also from the Psalms um, that are maybe are connected with like how we've read the Bible and kind of mentioned that as like going for the commands, mm-hmm. like Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I don't think that means that if I am not a sheep in a pasture eating grass, that I'm like doing it wrong because we would say, no, it's like, it's a metaphor. But if you don't know that it could be a metaphor, then it could sort of mess you up, right? Or like the commands in the Psalms, in Psalm 95, you know, come, let us sing with joy to the Lord. Let's shout aloud to the rock of our salvation, all that. So Warren, you are currently not singing, which means you are disobeying scripture. It's like, well, that's not what it's talking about. It's about sort of a way of life. You know, what, what kind of people do we want to be? We want to be people that sing and that are thankful. It's not saying do it all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, if you wanted to be real literal, said, yeah, but it says sing. Is that like an imperative? It's a command. Um, or maybe one of the ones that is kind of the best, I think, is um, Psalm 137, which is the, the psalm when the people of Israel are exiled into Babylon. And it starts off with the worship leader saying, um, you know, it was by the rivers of Babylon. We wept because we hung up our harps on the trees there. And, and the local people said, hey, sing us one of the songs of Zion. And it's not clear if he means like if they're taunting him or if it's like, hey, we like foreign music. Sing us a song, <laughs> you know. And, and the worship leader guy says, uh, there's no way I can do that. I, my, I want my right hand to wither up and my tongue to stick up to the roof of my mouth if I ever forget you, Jerusalem. And it's like, oh, that's so sad. But then he says, blessed is the person who takes one of the Babylonian babies and bashes its head against the rocks. Mm. And like, that's super troubling. <laughs> right. You know? And I think if we just, if we just read it at its face value, we would say, well, okay, what kind of a, what kind of a Bible is this? Right. Act, you know, advocating infanticide. Because other places in the Bible say, blessed is the person who does this. You know, I've mentioned Psalm 1, blessed is the one who meditates on the law of the Lord. But like when we think about it, I think what comes across pretty clearly is what you mentioned before. Like all this is, is an expression of anger and deep loss and frustration. This person is so upset that they feel like it would make them happy to murder a bunch of Babylonian babies. And we know that's not true. And probably he knows that's not true, but he's just being honest about what he feels. And to me, that's super liberating because what that says is like, if, if the church has said, yes, that's the word of God. If God has not directed the church, Hey, y'all need to edit that out. Mm. I think that means that God can handle anything that I say. Like there's no, I don't have to be embarrassed about, pouring out my heart to God in anger or grief or despair or frustration because God's heard way worse. I mean, I guarantee you. Yeah. And, and um, it's included in, in his scripture. So yeah. Yeah. And so if we take everything as a command, I, I don't think they're going to be very welcome if we walk down to the nursery and try to pick right. up some children. But if we think about, okay, it's poetry, it's a Psalm, it's a prayer. What might that mean? And how do I respond? Well, then it's, it not only becomes no longer troubling, it's a command I have to fulfill. It's, this is a heart cry of one of God's people. And I can sympathize with that. You know, and there's others about that, that kind of look like it's coming from a place of depression um, or rage or whatever. Um, and we feel those things in our lives. And to be able to have words to put on it and know that God can handle that. Um, I'm really grateful that we have things like the Psalms in the Bible. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, well, I, I want to switch gears just a little bit because I think, you know, I, I think there's sort of a connection here. We'll, we'll see if there totally is, but because um, I, I think part of what we've kind of been focused on here is this idea that there are, there's, there's diversity basically is sort of what we're saying um, within, within the, the text. And, and so um, that, that should impact how we read it, how we engage it, all those things. And, and so to, to maybe kind of switch gears a little bit, I, before we, we kind of jumped on here, I read an interview that you had done with someone at, um, with the Mosaic, um, I guess that's a kind of an email, is, the, is an email newsletter that Cyber Institute does, I believe, is that mm -hmm. right? Uh, so, so Mosaic had done a, an interview, someone at Mosaic had done an interview with you, and, and I'll link this to in, in kind of the, the notes for the episode, because I think there was a lot of insightful stuff there as well that, that people might be interested to read. But I didn't realize the theater background that that mm -hmm. you had, and and you know we've talked about um, just some 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 of the connections between theater and church um, in some of our other conversations. And like we we did a podcast where we talked about some of I don't know are you familiar with Anna, Anna Carter Florence and her book Rehearsing Scripture? You heard of that? I just have I've seen that title, but I haven't ever read it. Okay. Well, she talks a lot about kind of the, the connections between theater and, and the ways that you kind of engage a script in theater and the ways that church kind of can engage scripture. Um, and and it's a, I think it's a helpful look that if you enjoy the, the connections between those two things, I think you'd enjoy her, her approach in that book. But um, so I, I think there's a connection here as we think about the diversity of scripture, the ways we go about engaging it, and maybe uh, kind of the connections that that we might see between church and, and theater. Mm -hmm. And so it may be a little bit of a stretch, but I wanted to get your kind of opinion or your, some of your thoughts on that, because that was something in your interview that you talked about or in that interview with, with the Mosaic that you talked about was kind of where you see connections between theater and church. And I'm wondering if you can kind of talk about that for a little bit and, and especially maybe in a, in a kind of a, a world where we're kind of dealing with what do we do kind of post, post COVID are there things that you think church can learn from kind of that theater approach and, and mindset? Yeah. I mean, I'll say one of the things that I have always, have always loved about theater is the collaborative nature of it. And I don't know if that's just my personality or honestly, if it's from growing up at the vine, because I mean, we, we got there in either late 1981 or early 1982. And for 15 years, of the Vines history, there were no staff. I mean, the only people that got paid were the janitors, I think. And uh, what that meant was everything happened because everybody was involved. And, you know, of course there are some people maybe more than others, but like Bible classes, volunteer, nursery, volunteer, preaching, song leading, everything, just volunteer. And uh, it, you know, it was, it was about the size like it is now. And, you know, it's just kind of an all hands on deck sort of approach. And so when I got to theater, I don't know if I was already primed for it or, or what, but um, a, a theater production doesn't happen without everybody contributing in some way. Mm. And so, you know, you can be the greatest actor in the world, but if you're in a dark theater and there's nobody to turn the lights on, you're just going to be like doing your thing in the dark and nobody will see you. Or if you're the greatest lighting designer in the world and there's no one to actually operate the spotlight, you know, to do the thing you did, you can be a great director. And if you don't have a set designer, if you don't have actors, um, you know, it's, it's kind of the opposite of like the single artist who is sculpting or painting, uh, which is a fantastic art form in its own right. But it, it just takes collaboration. And I wouldn't be surprised at all if that's one of the things that uh, the church has to relearn. Um, I think in some ways, places like the Vine have maybe a leg up because there is already so much of that. But, you know, a lot of churches, uh, leadership and involvement is pretty top down. You've got a few people doing the vast majority of stuff. You have a lot of staff that are in charge of a lot of things. And a lot of the people that come on Sundays are just, they're fairly passive. They're just absorbing. They're taking in what's being offered to them. And it's not that it's consumeristic necessarily, but um, they're not necessarily contributing a lot. Um, but I think the same things that make a good theater production work are the same things that make a good church work when as many people as possible are working and contributing and sharing what they have. And, you know, I mean, that's kind of what you get when you read something like first Corinthians 14, when, I mean, Paul's talking about the worship service, everybody brings a hymn, a song, a revelation or whatever, but just that idea that this is not a presentation. Mm. Um, it's not just 
The sermon isn't just a good speech that happens to be on a spiritual topic. Um, the music isn't a concert. Um, the prayer isn't one person praying on behalf of the people. It works because we all contribute things. Um, and I think, I think that's something that the, the church may have to relearn um, that it's not exactly you only get out of it what you put into it, but in some ways more like um, that American spirit going back to the colonial days of public libraries and volunteer fire departments. And that when we cooperate, uh, lots of things happen. And of course, I mean, we know this in smaller churches, when you spend time cooperating, that's when relationships build. You know, if you if you want to get to know people in church, don't just show up one minute before service starts and leave one minute after, you know, when they, when they have a work day, come on over, you know, and just, and rake leaves with everybody and you get to have conversations. And when there's a potluck meal, bring some food and hang out and talk. And um, those are the kinds of things that help you get to know people and then can lead to not only a greater degree of fellowship and relationship, uh, but also involvement because you discover that you have things that the church needs. I mean, I heard somebody say one time, you know, sometimes we think like spiritual gifts are, they're just what is like in, inborn in you. And it's, it's basically the same as what you like. Well, if you're at a church the size of the vine and they keep announcing over and over, hey, we need help in the nursery. We need help in the nursery. We need help in the nursery. You're the first time you might think, well, that's not my spiritual gift. But if they keep saying it over and over, maybe you think, well, maybe I'll try it once just so that Warren will quit saying that. <laughs> and then you discover that you kind of do like kids or maybe you tolerate kids, but you like the other people that work in the nursery. And then the next thing you know, God is using you to bless the church in a way that you didn't even think you would. And, and that's something, honestly, to go back to your original question that happens in theater as well. I mean, there are people that, that think they're great actors and then it turns out they need to also do something over here and they contribute in new ways to a production that they, they didn't really anticipate. You know, that's, I don't know that I've ever thought about this, but I thought about it when you were saying that, that I don't know if this is exactly what you were intending, but we do, I think we, we tend to think of spiritual gifts as something that God has given to me and not a way that I can bless or, or serve the church in some way, mm -hmm. that a spiritual giftedness could be something in which I am using something to, um, to gift the, as a gift to the kingdom or the work of the church or whatever. Yeah which would kind of flip how we think about that. Not so much. Well, that's not my gift. I can't do that. But what, what gift do I have to, to give and to offer? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. I mean, and it fits with that, that image in Galatians five about the fruit of the spirit. Like mm. if I'm a tree bearing fruit, well, the tree doesn't eat the fruit, right? I mean, somebody else comes along. The fruit is for the good of other people. Yeah. Um, and I hadn't thought about that until you were just saying what you said. So I appreciate the way we're kind of, Kind of building well, and I think I think that that illustrates. I think what what I saw is the connection between these topics, and that's that's some of what Anna Carter Florence talks about is is this idea of the necessity of what she calls rehearsing scripture in community, and that if I'm not doing it with other people, I just by the very nature of things am going to miss stuff because I'm not getting someone else's perspective, just as, as, as we've seen here. And we talked about that in different conversations that we've had, that if, if I'm only relying on my eyes, on my experiences, on my insight and input, I'm going to miss something that, that someone else may bring to the conversation. Yeah. And, and I think the connection here is we talk about the different ways that, that we can go about reading scripture to me is that if we're, if we're going to kind of do this work of thinking through how we engage scripture and, and what we do with it and what is it calling us to do, um, I think that certainly adds to the richness of how we go about doing that. But doing that in community um, just, just adds so much more, I feel like. And when we read scripture together and, and when, we, when we are open to the perspective of other people, and open to something that, that like, hey, maybe that's not how I've always read it, but, but there seems to be something there. And that, that's interesting. And I want to explore that. Or I, I think that just, that's another way I think that we, um, it's another thing that we miss if we're totally reading it in isolation or just listening to sermons and not engaging it on our own or, or in kind of conversation settings. And, and I think that's just, that's another important, I think, piece of it for us to keep in mind as we think about. So 
how do I go about engaging with scripture well and in ways that are impactful and, and meaningful? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. And, and kind of going back to what we were talking about before, just the, recognizing that diversity in scripture, that e- even scripture itself may want us to hear differently. And we're re- reading in community uh, with others. Cause you know, sometimes you see scripture refer to itself. I mean, the book of Hebrews does that as it's kind of re- rehearsing. I mean, to use that language, it's rehearsing the story of, you know, of God's people in the old Testament. And, uh, you know, I might not have thought of what they were doing at those times as they were acting by faith, acting by faith, acting by faith. But, um, scripture itself helps us see ways that we re-listen to the stories in community with others. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, David, I, I really appreciate you, you taking some time to spend with us today on this topic and um, giving us a lot to think about. I appreciate your, your insights and, and, and your wisdom and, and all the work that, that you're doing there at ACU. So thank you very much. You are very welcome. It's been my pleasure and it's great to, um, the, only, the only regret is that we're not getting to have this in front of the church where I can see people's faces and be able to, to give them a hug afterwards. But yeah, glad to be able to talk with you about it and, and I hope it's a, a blessing to the people of the vine. Yeah, I do as well. So we typically close these out in prayer. So I'm gonna, well, actually, can, can I ask you to, to, to pray us out today? I'd be glad to, no problem. All right, thank you, David. Lord, we are, are so thankful for uh, so many things. Uh, today, we're thankful for the human ingenuity that created this technology, where we're able to, to talk to each other across the miles and then across time um, for the people that are listening after the fact. Uh, we're especially thankful for your word that you have given us in the Bible, um, or you've given us Jesus, and, and we believe that he was 100% human and 100% divine. And for us, the Bible is kind of the same way. It's your word and it's a human word. And that's a a mystery to us. And we don't really understand it all, but we are so grateful to have it. Um, We we often want to know your will and your word, and you've given us a way to to access that. And and you've done it in ways that that are so human. You've given us stories and poems and prayers. Uh, You've spoken through your prophets spoken through your pastors and your teachers. And I pray that, uh, as Jesus talked with us about, that you would give us ears to hear, uh, not only as we read and listen to your word itself, but also as we listen to other people talk about it, whether it's in a sermon or in a Bible class or a small group. Um, Help us as we read this text together in community, uh, because we do want to be your people. We want to constantly be growing in our faith, uh, we want to be uh, built up into a spiritual temple, like it talks about in First Peter, uh, and we need your help with that because it's so easy for us to get distracted, uh, to get off track, to end up doing the things that we want. Um, so, Lord, would you bless us, and would you bless this church? Uh, Lord, I love it, and uh, I know so many do. I pray for Warren and the other leaders as they are uh, making decisions and leading them, and I pray for the congregation as they uh, grow and change and figure out what life is going to look like as, uh, as the pandemic continues to fade. And we hope that it will, that it will go all the way in that way. Or please bless them and bless us all, no matter where we are and when we are today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.